0: in prayer. Father, thank you for uh, um, the grace of being together um, this morning. We often take um, things like this for granted, that, that we have the health and we have the capacity, um, the means to be here together and to gather early in the morning. And um, we thank you, Father, for the privilege of opening your word and learning what it is to live under it, and not just to live under you, but to live with you. In communion with you and we pray that we would know that both in how you come to us individually but also how um, how we to live together as men um, in community um, so father we do pray this morning for daniel three as we study we ask that you would uh, make your word come alive for us that you would show us things perhaps we haven't seen before that you would give us an imagination for the gospel um, and you would confirm once more for us your love for us in jesus we pray we need to hear it over and over again and we pray that It would be impressed upon us this morning. In Christ's name, amen. How many of you belong to a gym? Not a trick question. I'm not judging you, okay? I'm just curious. Keep your hands up. How many of you use the gym that you belong to? That's what I want to see. How many of you just make a donation every month? I can tell, yeah. But um, just for a moment this morning, I want to kind of reset your imagination. And I I just want you to imagine, this will be easier for some of you than others, well, you'd imagine that you're a complete stranger to the gym scene. Okay, like you've never, you've never been to a gym before. Actually, I want you to go a step further and let's just say that you've never, you've never even worked out before. You have no capacity for working out, you've never seen anyone work out. It's, it is, you, are, you are a stranger to it, it is completely foreign to you. All right, you've never seen it, and you find yourself one morning, you've wandered into the local YMCA. All right, you get there, and I just want you to think with fresh eyes, what would you see? You've never seen it before. What would you see as you walk in um, to the YMCA? I think you'd see people of all sizes and shapes, right? Uh, Wincing in pain, right? Um, You'd see some on machines running and and pedaling, going nowhere, all right? Um, Some are in large rooms or on mats contorting their bodies in really strange ways, Um, that don't sort of make any sense, and um, what you would see on the faces of people is you would see straining, and you would see testing, and you would see maybe ambition a little bit, maybe exhaustion, and maybe it would occur to you at some point that what you're seeing as people walk in the door is that they're doing this on purpose, like they are, people are coming here to strain themselves, and they don't have to. They're, they're, they're volunteering for it, and then you realize that, well, not only that, but they're handing over their money to do it, right? Their hard-earned money to come to this place uh, to be in pain, and, and not only that, but they're carving out their valuable time. You know, they're up at 5.30 in the morning when they could be in bed sleeping, or they're coming, sort of making time between work and getting a shower and going back. And, um, and then out of all that, maybe you would see that, hey, um, uh, so, so uh, that people are, are spending what they have, their resources, to come to a place like this and to suffer. So you've never seen this before, what do you think would be your conclusion about the gym scene? These crazy people who come to the gym to do these things that cause them pain. My guess is your conclusion would be that these people believe that there is something worthwhile in the strain. That when they're tested and when they're strained, when they're, um, they're tried, that they're actually getting something valuable in return that they're convinced would make them healthier and happier. Now, that may be a hard sell for you if you're just coming to the gym scene for the first time to see this and to watch it. You may think that they have something sort of psychologically wrong with them. But if you saw the results, if you, if you saw um, the connection between their own bodies, how their bodies changed or stayed the same or um, maintained or how they felt afterwards, if you saw the connection between the results of those people... And what they did in the gym, you might, you might in fact be convinced then by the evidence that what they were doing was actually good for them. Um, I, 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 I sort of share that with you because that's a picture, I think, of what Daniel is going to give us this morning, okay? Daniel is giving us in story form, he's giving us evidence that when our inner selves, when our faith, our hearts, whatever you want to call that, your inner self, your soul, when our inner selves are tried and tested and strained and contorted. Um, uh, When we find ourselves under pressure or in pain, there's actually actually good to come from it. And what Daniel's going to show us is that there's good to come from it, not just for our own spiritual health and happiness, but it actually overflows even to the good of other people who are looking in on us as we move through the strain. And I know that um, even to introduce it that way, I think it, you know, it hit me this morning, it just sounds somewhat cliche. It sounds cliche to say, you know what, what doesn't kill you will just make you stronger. But I do think that there's, uh, um, there's opportunity for us this morning, Well, cliche, number one, cliches are cliches for a reason. Often they become conventional wisdom that we need to sort of lean into, but um, I think there's uh, opportunity for us this morning in this particular story that many of you know well. To get beneath the cliche and to ask ourselves, what is God really up to when he puts us to the test? What does God want for us? What does he want through us? What is possible for us when our faith is tested, More we strained? Let's read together from Daniel 3 this morning. It's a long passage, a long chapter, and so I'm going to skip around a little bit. Um, I'm going to start in verse 1. I'm going to skip to verse 4. And then, uh, and then kind of read the bulk of the passage together and cut off a little short of the end. Daniel chapter 3, verse 1 goes like this King, ne- King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits. So you don't measure in cubits, that's about 90 feet, okay? Whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth, 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Verse 4. The herald proclaimed aloud You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn and the pipe, the trigon, the lyre, the harp, and the bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship this golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning fiery furnace. Therefore, the people, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the people's nations and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now at a certain time, the Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears all these instruments shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down in worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They don't serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. They brought these men before the king and Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I've set up? Now, if you are ready when you hear the sound of the instruments to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well, and good. But if you don't worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, I want you to pay attention to this answer. Pretty remarkable. He said, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. He will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Nebuchadnezzar was then filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the fiery furnace. And these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments. They were thrown into the burning fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace was overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. He he answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire. They are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. The satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Amen. So I want us to hone in this morning. There's a lot here, by the way, and um, you know, I'm going to pick and choose a little bit because of that. So I want us to hone in this morning particularly on the theme of trial and to ask the broad question, what is God up to when our faith, particularly in him, is strained and tested? What is he up to? So what else I want us to look at is uh, really three questions. Number one, I want us to pause for a moment and just look from the story to answer the question about where trials actually come from. Um, Where do they come from? How are we, how do we get to a place where we feel strained and tested, okay? Number two, what do trials have the power to reveal? What do they show about us? And finally, what do trials have the power to provide for us? So um, where do they come from, what do they reveal, and what, what is possible in them? What does a trial have the power to provide? Well first, where it comes from. So just to recap, it's a long story, and many of you have heard it before. So Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego are these young Jewish, I mean, they're, they're elite government officials. I mean, they've, they've risen to power in a pagan empire, and they've been put over um, uh, to rule and, and given authority to rule over, over Babylon. And so Nebuchadnezzar sets up, and this is probably not, um, I mean, a statue this high was fairly rare, but not, not rare for a, a, um, a king to set up some image, mostly of himself. It never says that, but often it's an image of himself to consolidate his power, the religious power that existed in the empire, and to mandate that everyone, and notice every one of all peoples, languages, and tribes, were then to worship this 90-foot shiny statue. So they don't do it. <laughs> um, uh, uh, they are questioned before Nebuchadnezzar. They're found guilty. They're thrown into a fiery furnace, and Nebuchadnezzar sees them in the furnace, and he doesn't just see them, he sees what? He sees another person there. And he says, you know, I don't know that he has the categories that we have, but he says, here's something like a son of the gods. So it's something kind of strange and that sticks out with them in the fiery furnace, and then he lets them go while praising the God of Israel. So, so where does the trial come from? Well, on the surface, I think the trial is, is fairly plain in, in the story. The first thing that we learn is that there is a conflict, right, between this shiny, public, large god of Babylon and uh, the God that everyone else is looking and bowing down to. There's a conflict between this statue, this image, and the God of Israel. And it's an irreconcilable, irreconcilable conflict. Now we might call this trial a cultural trial, and what I want you to see here in this cultural trial is that every Israelite, not just these three men, but every Israelite that worships the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, has to endure the conflict of this particular trial. Everyone does. They have to endure the irreconcilable conflict between what is living comfortably in Babylon or abiding in Christ faithfully. And um, so you know, years later, is, is this unique to Babylon? Years later, the Apostle John writes that he tells us in one of his epistles that there is a perpetual clash between the things of the world and the things of God. And what John is saying and what we're learning here even in Babylon is that if you're a Christian, if you're someone who who loves and and, um, pledges loyalty and allegiance to God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then you will find that this is a perpetual crisis that you face on a regular basis no matter who you are. And it goes something like this. Will you worship the 90-foot shiny gods of your culture. Okay? Um, for us, maybe the gods of, uh, you know, we say the, the holy untrinity, the gods of uh, uh, power, sex, and money. Okay? Will you worship the, worship the gods of your culture, power, sex, money, achievement, intelligence, beauty, whatever they are, whatever is, uh, is fashionable and highly regarded, will you worship those gods in conformity with the world around you? Or will you give your allegiance to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Okay, so that's one trial on the surface of it. It's a cultural one, and it's basically what it looks like and feels like um, to live for God, to live under his authority and rule in a fallen world. And what I want you just to see is that strain never goes away, and you can't fix it or solve it. We have to learn to endure it, to get used to the strain, and not imagine that in some way it's our job to relax it. In fact, most of the problem um, with synchronism or with compromise in Christianity is a failure uh, uh, on the part of God's people to actually relax that strain. So the only way to get out of the strain for these men or for Israel was to try to do both, right? To both worship and bow down, to fake it, but also to really pledge their allegiance and what what Daniel is saying is there wasn't a way to do that. That is a strain in a trial that you face on a regular basis. Now, I I don't really actually want to talk about that much this morning. What I want us to look at is that there's actually another source of trial that I want to point out and it's not just a cultural trial or a general trial for Israel. There is a personal trial from God's hand for these three men in particular. What I want you to see is that of all Israel, God calls these men out in particular to endure this furnace, while others, men, women, and children, are left untouched. And I want you to see, it probably doesn't seem fair, they're singled out, we don't really know why, we're just told that they were in high positions, so maybe it had something to do with their positions. But what we do know is they're singled out not because they did anything wrong. And I want you to see that. That they are actually led into the furnace not because they messed up at some level, but because of their obedience to God, they're led into the furnace. Just like Job before them, right? Job is led into a trial, he's led into a period of testing because Satan comes to God and said, here is a righteous man, let me sift him. Jesus is led into the desert after his baptism after God in the form of a dove has come down and said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Let's take him to the desert to be tested. I just want you to see that, that the personal trial itself comes from the hand of God providentially, and it's not because these men have messed up. It is tempting to think, maybe not for you, but for many of us it is. It is tempting to think that, that when we go through something that is hard and it strains us, oh Lord, is it because I've messed up in some way? What have I done wrong to deserve this? And I want to reiterate this morning, not in any sort of cold matter-of-fact way, but in a way that really honors the pain that some of you are going through even now, that God himself is the one who leads you. As he led these men, as he led his own son, Into the desert, not because you're living under his condemnation, but actually because you are living under his care. And what I hope you see this morning is that there is grace available to us in the trial, and and even more, Jesus does promise this, and you see it at the end of the story. It doesn't always happen in the way it happens for these three men, but Jesus promises that whatever is given up for his sake in the gospel, God himself will restore for you a hundredfold. Maybe, when, maybe when, not until Jesus comes back in the new heavens and the new earth, but there is a promise of complete restoration for what you have to endure for the sake of Jesus' name. God leads us providentially and personally into the trials he calls us into. There's a general one for all of us, and as you men, most, many of you men know even now, there are personal ones that we are led into by the hand of God himself, not because we messed up but because he loves us. Number one, trials come from the hand of God. Secondly, what, the, what does the trial reveal? So let's look at this for a moment. This is probably the most important thing in the text. Um, so what does the trial reveal? Well, the trial, a lot of things here. I, mean, I think the most obvious thing that the trial reveals, and you, and you we, we sort of know this and talk about this, the trial reveals the character of these men, right? So you can look at these men in the face of, of, of Nebuchadnezzar and say, I think it's fair for you to say this, These are men that we should want to become. They stand before the most influential and powerful ruler in the world. They are questioned. They have a chance to be delivered or get thrown into a furnace, and they stand up to him. They are men of integrity, of faithfulness, of allegiance, of loyalty, of wisdom in the way that they speak. Um, It is true that one uh, one of the things that a trial reveals is it reveals the stuff we're made of. When we're squeezed, when we're under strain, what comes out? What comes out? I want to take it a step further, though. Um, Where does that stuff come from in these men? Where do these men get the things that we just mentioned? Where do they get strength? Where do they get courage? Where do they find patience? Where do they draw wisdom? And here's your clue. I want you to notice for a moment the contrast... In the story, if you've never noticed it before, the contrast between the disposition of Nebuchadnezzar and the disposition of these men. Okay? First, just in the text, notice, notice the disposition of Nebuchadnezzar. Look with me at verses 13 and 19. All right? Look down at your, at your passage for a moment. How does, how does the story describe Nebuchadnezzar in verses 13 and 19? What does it say? He's what? He's enraged. Okay, he's furious, right? He's so furious that what does he do? I mean, he's like, turn it up. He, he, turns, he heats the furnace seven times. I mean, he's killing his own men. Seven times more than it will go. And, and what the furnace is, is a picture of the heat that he feels internally against these men. Now, it's easy to look at that and sort of say, oh, well, he's, you know, he's, he's got anger issues, Right? He's an angry man. But I want you just to stop for a moment and ponder what you just read. You are Nebuchadnezzar, why in the world would you care? (laughs) Really? I mean, why would you care what these three men say or think? He is the king. He has money, he has power, he has a harem. When he plays golf, they write down whatever score he wants them to write down, okay? (laughs) He does whatever everyone else tells him to. And it's not enough for him, is it? He needs something more. He needs the respect and the approval and the admiration of these three foreigners. Now, why does he care? Because no matter how high the statue, no matter how large the kingdom, no matter how strong the approval ratings, we are made so that we forever need someone or something outside of us to judge us. Look, I know it sounds weird because we always talk about not wanting to be judged, (laughs) but we long to be judged. We long to be told by someone in authority or some other measure outside of us that we are okay, uh, that we are right, um, that we are um, satisfactory in some way. And what I want to tell you is even the king, even this king who has it all, the most powerful man in the world, he cannot settle that question for himself. Nebuchadnezzar, with all that he has, still does not have consensus on this question in his own life. He is enraged because he can't get enough of the thing that he needs. Now, I just want to pause here for a moment, men, and say here is a surefire way for you to identify the gods that you run to for refuge in your own life. It is to look squarely in the face of your anger, your defensiveness, your jealousy, and to ask yourself, what do I really need that is beneath all that? You know, when things don't work out the way that I hope they would, why do I get so mad? What do I really need? Why do I get so defensive when my wife challenges what I say? Or my children? Why am I bitter at a person for not respecting me in the way that I think I ought to be respected? Why am I jealous when a friend's career takes off in a way that mine has not? Now if you chase down those questions, if It would take courage just to do that. (laughs) But if you chase down those questions, if you chase down the root of what's behind your anger and your jealousy and your defensiveness and your restlessness, here's what you'll find. You are looking for someone to judge you. For someone or something in authority to tell you that you are okay. That you are right, that you are enough. And what I want to tell you this morning is that the only one who can settle that for you is God himself, the one who made you. God is the only authority that can render the kind of judgment in your life that can actually give you peace. Now, how do I know that? Well, you see it in the disposition of Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, don't you? L- look at them for a moment um, in the story. Compare to Nebuchadnezzar, so of course, the trial reveals their character, But it also reveals that they have something deep down inside that has given them a settled disposition about how they are to live and think about themselves. So look at verses 16 through 18 with me. And just look at how the men respond. So they're questioned, right? And in verse 16 it says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. (laughs) You see what they're saying? They're saying, look, we don't really care what you think. <laughs> You've asked us a question. We're gonna, we're gonna pass, you know? I mean, um, we realize that when we don't answer you, that controls you in such a way that you can't hardly sit still. And you're the king that has it all. But for us, standing before you, though our life hangs by a thread, we don't care. We don't care what you think about us. We don't need your affirmation, your agreement. We don't need to answer you in any satisfying way. They are so secure that they don't need Anything from Nebuchadnezzar. And then two, look at this even more. He say this, if this be so, listen to how they answer this. Our God whom, whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. Amen. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Amen. But if not, do you see that? It's a really important statement. But if he doesn't, O king. In other words, if we, if we perish, if if in, if we get in the furnace and everything just melts away, if not, we still will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Do you see what they're saying here? Not only are we so secure that we don't care what you think, we are so secure that God no longer has to prove His love for us by delivering us from the trial. We are so secure. Look, if God delivers us, He does. But if He doesn't, if He doesn't show up and deliver us, we're okay. We're okay. And that is really important because it is so tempting to think that in a trial, our obedience, our faithfulness is what merits God's blessing. That if I show up and stand up and do the right thing and soldier through, then God owes me. He's obligated to come and deliver me. And that is its own twisted form of religious idolatry because what we're doing is holding our obedience over God's head and saying, you have to honor this. This is my real God. And yet, Nebuchadnezzar—excuse me these men are standing not on the approval of Nebuchadnezzar, but neither are they standing on the approval of their own merit. <laughs> That's not their source of confidence either. Well, then what is it? Well, it would have been what they knew from being good Jews. And the father of uh, the Jewish nation was a man named Abraham. You've heard of Abraham before. And the story they would have been told over and over is that Abraham, who was a man who left all that he knew, who endured trial himself, because the passage goes, and this is one of the most oft-quoted passages in the New Testament, that when Abraham heard God, it says that Abraham believed God. And it was credited to him as Righteousness. And so the story they knew is that it would be enough if they were to trust in God alone, that the trust in God was to receive an evaluation from him that said, you are enough. Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, I judge you right in my eyes. You are judged right by me. You have my approval as the authority that made you, and you need nothing else. Though they didn't know it, that judgment would be confirmed years later by the satisfaction that God himself found in his own son. They knew it by the sacrifices. They knew there was a shadow of someone to come. They knew that at some point from reading the prophet Isaiah that there would be someone who would be tried and tested and contorted for them. That in their own life they may be judged right and confirmed and declared and judged right in the eyes of God, through the pain and the suffering and the contortion and the merit of someone else in their place. Now, why is that so important? Why is it so important to believe something like justification when you stand in the midst of the trial? It is so important because what is never on trial in the midst of your strain is God's love for you. What is never never on trial in the midst of the strain is what God really thinks about you. And in order to have the courage and the character and the patience, the steadfastness that these men exude, your source of strength must be grounded in a judgment that cannot be assaulted. And what Nebuchadnezzar shows you is that everything else that you try to grip because he had it all can be. Everything else can be assaulted except the judgment of God for you. God looks at his son after his baptism and says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, and that judgment is available for you in the name of Jesus. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. You need no one else to add to that evaluation to strengthen you for the trial ahead. Okay then, so what use is the trial? (laughs) Last point I just want to make briefly this morning. I know we need to get to our tables, but um, so so what is possible in the trial? What is God up to in the trial? And I, I want you to see this before we leave because I think it's really, really important that we sort of end here. Um, you know, um, it, it, it's clear that God is interested in saving them, right? Because He does it, He delivers them, and Nebuchadnezzar sees it, and He. He, I mean, he has this momentary thing where he sort of believes for a moment, and then next chapter you're going to find out that that didn't last very long. <laughs> you know, so he goes back and forth in faith just like we do. But, um, but God is interested in more than just saving them. Uh, John Calvin, the holy saint of the Reformation, John Calvin, points this out. Um, he says, look, if deliverance in the passage, if deliverance was the only goal, then God could have chosen to save them in a lot of different ways. If deliverance was his only goal, 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 then he could have extinguished the flames. He could have cooled the furnace. But what happens instead? When Nebuchadnezzar looks into the furnace, he doesn't see that the flames have gone away, does he? What does he, say, what does he see? It says he sees a fourth person. There is someone in that furnace with them that has the appearance of the sons of gods, and forgive Nebuchadnezzar because he doesn't have categories. Oh, what does it look like? Well, it looks like the Son of a God, you know, an angel. Who knows what it was? But it probably means that in some pre-incarnate form, what happened was that these men were communing with God himself. That God didn't just extinguish the flames, but he walked into the furnace with them, and he shared their judgment. He walked into the furnace with them, and he shared their trial. And in there, you'll notice that he unbinds them in the midst of the trial. And he frees them. And it says that he walks hand in hand with them in the midst of their suffering. Now why is that important? It's really important because it shows what God is really after in your life. You know, it is true that God cares about you getting right with him. Forensically, you know, uh, in terms of legally and justification, he is concerned about that. It is true that God is concerned about your worship about your loyalty and your allegiance and your honor and doing all those things, it is true that God is concerned about your character, your steadfastness, your kindness, your love, your wisdom. But what God himself is after more than anything else is you. That is the heart of the covenant. God is after a relationship with you. I think it's easy to forget that God himself is a person because we don't see him like that. We think of God as a power that reigns over us. He's an authority over us. But God is a person, the Bible tells us, and the highest form of connection with a person is not loyalty, it's love. It's intimacy. It's closeness. It's union. It's mutual delight and celebration together. God images himself that in the trinity of who he is as a community. But that's what God wants, and He comes down in the midst of this, in relationship with these men. I've shared this story before, but it, for me, it's, it it it, um, it crystallizes some of what we've been talking about. And I have a friend that um, uh um, it's a, a minister now, and he shared this with me that he he found himself in an amusement park uh, some years ago. And after riding the rides all day, he kind of sat down to take a break, and he noticed in the amusement park, it was a hot day, that a crowd had gathered. And they were sort of giggling and laughing around something, and so he got up to go find out what it was about, and he saw that it was, everybody was gathered around this mist machine, and what a mist machine is in a hot amusement park, it's just that, that fan that blows water. People kind of get in and run over, and, and he said when he got up there, he saw that, that sort of the crowd of, uh, uh, of, um, uh, of teenagers were pointing and giggling and making fun of a dad who was, who was in the mist machine with his daughter. And he said when he saw what was happening, it, it really made him angry because what he saw was a dad who was with this little girl who was eight or nine years old and she was terribly misshapen. Um, the arm and the leg on one side of her body were, were way longer than the arm and leg on the other side of her body and just very distorted, it was very awkward. And he said when he saw what was going on, it made him so angry. How dare they? How dare they sit around and look and laugh and giggle and point fingers at this little girl who bore her brokenness in her body so plainly? And then he said it hit him. The little girl was oblivious to it all. She couldn't have cared less. Uh, She was splashing, and she was dancing, and she was playing with her dad in the mist. And at one point, her dad lifts her up and... Um, He puts her on his shoulders, and they're spinning together under the water, and that's when my friend realized, you know what, she's okay. She's okay. Because she had what she wanted most. And it wasn't the approbation of the crowd. It wasn't deliverance from their giggles and stares. It was she had the smile, the affection of her dad. And that made everything okay. She had him, and that was enough. What is it that God wants most from you? He wants you. What is it that God the Father wants most for you? He wants to give you himself. You say, well, Chad, can't I just have that without a trial? can I, can I get that without a trial? <laughs> without the testing and the straining and without being thrown into a furnace? And The, the short answer is yes, in some measure. Through prayer, through reading the word, And through the sacraments, the means of grace, you can commune with God in very specific and powerful ways. But let me tell you this, from the pages of the Bible and the testimony of Christians throughout the centuries, I can tell you that trials give you God in a way that almost nothing else can. The psalmist says that God is near to the weak. He is near to the brokenhearted. And that is not meant to be poetic hyperbole. It is a statement of fact that God comes to those specifically in need. You say, well, that's great. Well, what if there's no furnace in my life right now? What if I, do I go look for a personal trial? Absolutely not. I want you to notice this. This is the encouraging thing for me who's not walking through what these men are facing. I want you to notice that Nebuchadnezzar himself feeds on what he sees in the life of these men. Do you see what changes him in the end of the story? Even even if for a moment, what changes him? What changes him is not that he sees the integrity of these men in the face of death under condemnation. What changes him is that he sees God walking with them in the furnace. What I want you to see this morning is that some of you may find yourself in the place of Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. You are straining and wincing and struggling and hoping in the midst of some fiery trial but the rest of us should find ourselves in the place of Nebuchadnezzar. We are among those whose faith needs to be started or strengthened through witnessing Jesus walk closely with someone else who is in the furnace. I can say it like this. If you are not in a trial, you need to be walking closely with someone who is. Um, As a friend, not as a project, but as a friend, as a fellow pilgrim, both for their sake, because they should never endure that alone, but also for your sake. You need the benefit of watching God work in their lives. And if any of you have ever sat beside someone dying in a hospital bed who loves the Lord, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And you, you go visit that person, and you watch them walk through the furnace of suffering, and you know in a strange way what it was for you to see Jesus with them. Listen to how Peter reflects on this passage in 1 Peter. I'm sure we'll get there someday from the pulpit. He says this. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial. Had to be thinking about this passage. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes to test you as though something strange were happening to you. He says, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Rejoice because, because what you're doing in that is you are sharing in an intimate way in who God himself is. God came into the furnace of your life. Now guess what? You get to go into the furnace of his, into his suffering so that you might know him. And then Peter says this, that you may also rejoice and be glad with him when his glory is revealed. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for uh, your word to us this morning. Um, pray that you would bless us through it, Father, that you would give us once again um, hearts affections desires habits um, that would be evidences of a transformed life from an abiding relationship with you from knowing you um, lord we don't we don't pray for trials but we do pray for um, we do pray that when you give them to us that you would give us yourself in strong measure and father we do pray for the integrity and strength of character to love you in the face of the world that you've called us to love in jesus name we pray Amen.